Hello and welcome to the Sydney Environment Institute's Critical Minerals podcast series, a series that will unpack what critical minerals are, why they are important and what the big issues are in mining them. My name is Susan Park and I'm Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. I'm leading the Critical Minerals Research Project at the Sydney Environment Institute that investigates the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable energy transition. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Donald Kingsbury, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Latin American Studies at the University of Toronto. We will discuss what exactly the problem is in mining for renewable energy and what we can do about them. Welcome, Donald. Hello, Susan. Thanks for having me. So one of the big issues in trying to think about the transition to sustainable energy is precisely how we move from our dependence on fossil fuels to renewable energy. Of course, we are now beginning to realise the extent to which we are reliant in this process on mining of critical minerals. Could you tell us exactly what the main problems are in extracting minerals for renewable energy? Yeah, thank you. That's I mean, that's a really great way to start. And it really gets to the heart of the research that a number of people and myself included have been getting at for for a few years now. And that's, you know, what makes critical minerals different? Um, they're, they're mined materials just like gold or, or diamonds. What makes them different from, from all these other things that we've been pulling from the earth for quite some time? I've been looking particularly at lithium, uh, lithium in Canada and lithium in uh, South America. And we really wanted to look at, you know, what kind of standards is lithium mine being, mining being held to? Does it have a, you know, like a higher barrier in terms of community involvement or democratic participation, free prior informed consent? Are there also higher standards in terms of environmental regulations, seeing as these are minerals that are being mined in order to ostensibly, you know, save the environment, quote unquote, you one, one would hope that we wouldn't destroy the environment in the process of, of, of getting them. What we've discovered so far is really there's not much that, that makes lithium, for example, distinct from, from any other mineral that's extracted from the earth. It carries with it the same ecological, economic, and, and political issues that we associate with, with any other mineral uh, extracted. So one of the, the main kind of fault lines that we're seeing, particularly among local community groups, is water. Uh, all mining is water intensive, but the fault lines around how water is impacted by lithium mining in particular has really become a, a major a major issue. There's enduring questions about the degree to which lithium and other critical minerals uh, offer potential inroads for development and industrialization in countries like Bolivia and, and Argentina. Um, these are countries that have long histories uh, with boom and bust cycles in the extraction of primary materials. And so they're, they're very wary, but also very looking with an opportunistic eye to potentially jump in on the, the boom in lithium and other critical minerals. So in one respect, there's there's a way in which mining for critical minerals, it, it doesn't differ at all from, from other uh, extractive processes. But since we're extracting lithium and other critical minerals, not as energy sources, but rather as storage for, for storage technologies for energy, it does enter into some other questions that are specific to critical minerals. And, and that has to do with the, the really rapidly evolving technical specifications for batteries. Uh, and this is something that's had investors nervous for quite some time. Meaning that, you know, nobody really, uh, investors are very nervous or hesitant to sink you know, billions or millions of dollars in venture capital into a mine that might take 10 years to become operational if new technology makes lithium or cobalt obsolete in five. 
And so one of the things that we're seeing, this, this kind of contingency of technological developments in the battery sector is really incentivizing governments to really aggressively de-risk mining in critical minerals to provide extra supports in the form of infrastructures, expedited permitting, expedited oversight processes, as well as just direct subsidies to uh, to extract these minerals, to produce these minerals. So that, that's one of the, the, the big ways that they're distinct from, uh, from other, other minerals extracted from the earth. And then just one final way that we might think of them as distinct is just in the, the kind of global historical moment that critical mineral mining is occurring in, in the context of the climate and nature crises, and the increasing awareness of just how the, the expanded supply chains that really became the norm in the 1990s with globalization, where you've got you know, factories on literally every corner of the globe contributing to the production of, for example, an electric vehicle, these are these kinds of footprints, these ecological footprints, governments and investors and regulators are increasingly wary of them. And you're seeing legislation coming out of the EU, for example, that monitors the carbon output for, uh, you know, the lithium that's extracted in Argentina and then shipped to Germany, for example, counting that in the, the total carbon output for the production of an electric vehicle, for example. It's also the selling point that countries like Canada are using, saying, look, we've got all of the mines in Canada and we've got all of the uh, automobile manufacturing facilities around the Great Lakes. And so we can really shorten the or, or, or reduce the carbon output for batteries and electric vehicles if we onshore or friendshore production here in North America rather than relying on imports uh, from South America, for example. So much to unpack there, everything from booms and busts and trying to find ways to make a profit from extracting lithium, uh, what it's used for, for, for battery storage and for electric vehicles, addressing the, the climate and the nature crises while doing so, the effects on water. It, there's really so much here. I guess one of the questions I have for you is, um, Given that both countries like Australia and Canada are engaged in lithium mining for the transition to renewable energy, principally through lithium-ion batteries or using lithium for batteries, is there a difference between the problems people face in Canada and, and, and Australia around mine sites from, say, countries like Bolivia? Yeah, um, absolutely. There's there's a lot of really, really important, really salient differences. Uh, the, the primary one being that just the, the product the process of mining in Australia and Canada uh, is the extraction of rock, spodumene ore. Uh, so it's it's lithium in a solid state. And it's the kind of mining that we, I think a lot of people intuitively think of when they think of mining. Giant holes in the earth, giant machines that, that pull minerals out of the ground that then get crushed, chemically treated and refined to a degree of purity that's usable for the desired consumer output, in this case, uh, batteries. So that's that's how lithium comes out in Australia and in Canada. In South America, it's very different. In Bolivia, in Chile and in Argentina, uh, lithium is extracted from aquifers. There are subterranean brine pools, essentially, that are very mineral dense, not just in lithium, but in other minerals like potassium, calcium, borax. And the way lithium is, is, is extracted from these uh, salares, from these, uh, from these high altitude salt flats, essentially, is the, the brine in aquifers is pumped to the surface and then pumped out into a series of massive, like larger than a football pitch, much larger than football pitches, pools, where uh, solar radiation evaporates the water, 
concentrates the mineral content in the, in the brine. And then the, the chemicals, the desired minerals are, are then extracted from each other. So the lithium is separated from the potassium and then further refined into this lithium carbonate equivalent, for example. And so that's a very different process. Many in the industry for a long time said that, you know, lithium isn't lithium in South America isn't a mining process. It's rather more like farming or more like chemistry because there's so much technological input uh, that that's in their mind, you know, centuries, centuries ahead of, of traditional rock mining. So that's the big the big major difference is just in what lithium looks like and how we get it out of the earth in different locations. There's there's a few other ways in which a few social and political ways, if I might um, explore a little bit here, in which lithium mining is different in Canada and, and Australia versus South America. The South American countries, Argentina, Bolivia and, and Chile, are all approaching the extraction of lithium in very, very different ways. Argentina, for example, has a very similar to the United States, similar to Canada approach, where it's very much driven by the private sector. Local provincial governments and the federal government are doing everything in their power to facilitate foreign investment to, uh, to process, to, to extract the lithium. And in part, this is because Argentina is in the context of one of its worst uh, economic crises in, in, in decades. So it's a very private sector driven process. In Chile, similarly, you have a private sector driven process. Uh, however, the lithium sector is really dominated by a duopoly, by, by two companies. You're seeing some of the junior mining companies emerging in, in different salares than, than the major site of extraction in the Atacama Desert in the north. Um, but really, uh, two companies, Albemarle from the United States and SQM from Chile, dominate the lithium market in Chile. And in fact, SQM started life as a, as a state-run industry. It was privatized during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet in the 1980s. He actually gifted the company to his son-in-law. So it was privatization and, and nepotism in, uh, in one package. It's now been privatized again, but the son-in-law, now ex-son-in-law, he, he got divorced from Pinochet's daughter, is still in control of the company. So, so there's a real legacy there. Uh, and when I say duopoly, I don't just mean they happen to control market share. I mean, they've got kind of a social and political lock on lithium extraction in Chile. Bolivia is doing something completely different. They are trying to create a, a made-in-Bolivia lithium policy. Two presidents now have stated very emphatically that they do not want to export a single gram of unprocessed lithium. When you walk out of your airplane onto the jetway at the international airport in La Paz, on the jetway, you're greeted by huge posters, uh, government propaganda saying lithium is the road to our future. The industrialization of lithium will lead to Bolivia's development. And you see similar posters with the pictures of the president and all sorts of high tech gadgetry when you're when you're driving around, you know, on the, on the country's highways. They really see lithium as their royal road to development. Uh, whereas in Argentina, it's a way out of a deep financial crisis. And in Chile, it's it's just another thing they pull out of the earth in the north. Keeping in mind that Chile is also the world's number one copper producer and copper also is, is a critical mineral necessary for anything that has to do with electrification. So there, there's there's a lot of differences in terms of the, the kind of regulatory and the, the model in terms of how to move forward with mining in, in South America. There's also a lot of differences in terms of the, the recourses that citizens and frontline communities have in terms of contesting the opening of mines 
that may affect their water supplies or their livelihoods. I don't want to paint Canada and Australia as if it's as if either country is this place where citizens have a direct say and substantive input in terms of, of what mines get opened, where, how, and how they operate. Um, but there are at least mechanisms in place and a degree of transparency that's assumed by, by citizens and organized civil society groups in Canada and Australia that, that just simply don't, don't exist for, for some very good reasons and some not so good reasons, um, meaning just for some it's, it's just habit, for some it's because of the legacy of dictatorships. But there is this, this, this difference in terms of avenues for citizen and civil society input that differ greatly across the cases. That's really, really rich response there, Donald. You've covered everything, resource nationalism, the political economy of mining and specifically lithium, and also taking us into mining dynasties uh, that exist uh, in different places. One of the things you mentioned earlier in, in your first response was this concept of free, prior and informed consent. Can you tell us what that means? Free prior and informed consent is uh, it's it's a norm, it's a standard, and it's also part of numerous treaties that governments uh, throughout the world are signatories to. In particular, the International Labor Organization's Law Number or Declaration One Sixty Nine, particularly on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Free prior and informed consent means that prior to uh, a mine's opening, the company in question and the government have to provide information about the impacts and benefits of the mine in a, a way that is understandable by the population. They have to be able to uh, provide consent to the mine in a, uh, in a way that's uncoerced. Right? And, and coercion here can mean everything from security forces to uh, the kind of divide and conquer techniques that companies often can utilize, where they you know, promise one sector of a community jobs and uh, percentages of, of output revenues uh, and other sectors don't benefit from that. So, so um, free means uncoerced in a very holistic sense of the term. But then the issue uh, really hinges, and this, this is where it gets debated in courts, uh, on this question of consent, right? That's C in the FPIC, free prior and informed consent. There are uh, you know, numerous land defenders, numerous civil society groups, and, and indeed the, the right, the authors of you know, documents like 169 from the ILO or the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People that have a very hard line that say consent means frontline communities, and in particular Indigenous communities, where many of these mega projects are located, should have the ability to veto a project. They should have the ability to say this mine will affect our livelihood, this mine will affect uh, our livelihood for generations, and so therefore we don't want it on our territory. Governments have been very, you'll be shocked to hear, have not, have not shared this view. Uh, indeed, when the, the government of Canada signed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples 10 years after it was passed by the General Assembly, um, this is something that Canada, the United States, and Australia share, uh, some pretty stalwart opposition to this document. When Canada did finally sign it, they said it was a aspirational document. Right. So they, they had a signing statement that said, essentially, you know, this is uh, ideal practices, but we don't live in an ideal world. And so what you've seen in mining projects, in particular in in the north, but also in the south, is an interpretation of free prior informed consent that interprets consent as consultation, which is essentially we've let you know, we've let you know in a public fashion, we've let you know before shovels hit the ground. Now we're going to dig. 
you see a, an awful lot of misinformation on the part of representatives of governments and of businesses when they do enter into these discussions with, with local community groups. That is in some ways quite frightening to hear, um, but in other ways unsurprising. Um, the, the concept of free, prior and informed consent, I mean, I guess in some ways people would be concerned about, you know, the impacts that lithium can have in, in the rapid tr transition to renewable energy being upheld by a small group at, around the mine site. On the other hand, we do know that the extraction of, of minerals for whatever reason does have a quite significant environmental and social impacts around the mine sites. And you've talked about this in, in relation to water, um, but it also has knock-on effects for communities in terms of the environmental damage, mine tailings, toxicity and so forth. So there's quite a lot there that can have an impact on local communities that can be sort of the beginning of something more endemic, can't it, in terms of um, having lasting impacts on, on communities around the mine sites. And we see that in Australia as well. So I guess my final question to you, Donald, is what can we do to make the process less harmful? It's a big one. It's a big one, <laughs> yeah. One. Way, to, way to end with a, with a bang. I, I think one thing, you know, folks like me who spend a lot of time studying resource ext extraction can get very... Um, very pessimistic because the the damages are so generational and they're so long standing and i mean both environmental impacts but also social impacts you know people get removed from their land you know communities lose their primary livelihoods when mines close or when mines open and displace other economic activity so it's it's and this is you know saying nothing about just the long term pollution that happens in in local effects and you just mentioned tailings ponds and disruptions of waterways and and animal migratory patterns and etc so it's very easy to be very pessimistic and and i think that kind of critical eye is really necessary there is something that we have to admit, though, which is the mining industry's gotten better. You know, I can't believe I'm saying that in some ways, but, you know, over the course of the last 50 years, mining has gotten better for workers and for local communities. It hasn't gotten better for local communities and workers because mining CEOs suddenly developed a social conscious. It's developed, it's gotten better because of, you know, constant struggle. People pushing for more environmental oversight, people pushing for more workplace safety, people pushing for better um, divisions of revenues so that local communities get some of the benefits of mines. And indeed, many of the mines for critical minerals that are currently in proposal stages are located in existing extractive zones, places where there's already a high concentration of mines and already that rich history of, of labor organization and, and environmental activism. So one way to, to, to look at how things get better is to continue to prioritize those voices that have already made incremental changes for the better in mining. That's not to say mining's perfect. It's far from perfect, right? Uh, it's, it's far from perfect, especially in the global South, where those recourses to citizen participation, civil society involvement, and transparency are, are lacking. Or even worse, when they exist on paper, but they're just unenforced. And so one other thing to look at is, is enforcing the laws that are on the books, which, you know, requires a new generation or, or, you know, an influx of, you know, lawmakers and regulators who are willing to do so, who have the political will to, to do so, which is not, you know, I recognize that's maybe a fanciful notion, but but that is something that that is a, an avenue to pursue for uh, people working to make mines better. There's larger perspectives, so that's 
you know, maybe a local or a national way to think about it to, to continue and deepen the momentum and use the tools that we already have, build more tools. One thing that, that I often do when I'm, when I'm interviewing opponents of mines for critical minerals or otherwise is, is uh, especially in their proposal stages, a lot of my research lately has been around mines before they open. So looking at, at what kind of social and environmental impacts happen before any extraction begins to occur. And I'll ask opponents, um, you know, is there anything that would make you become a supporter of this mine? And in response to that question around a proposed lithium mine in northern Quebec here in Canada, a longstanding you know, like like a 70-year-old environmental activist uh, responded, I would support this mine if it was being uh, opened and if its operations were dictated by, by human need rather than by increasing the revenues for shareholders, right? This is a major philosophical shift, right? Particularly in places like Canada or Australia or Argentina, where the private sector is really being encouraged and, and all of the eggs are in the basket of the private sector developing these, these vital critical minerals. Um, but but I, I think that's something to keep in mind, especially as we, we organize that looking at the extraction of critical minerals and thinking about its relationship to decarbonization is a real opportunity to put different values on the table. Right? Not just, well, the private sector has been doing mining forever, so we should rely on them to do it in the most economically efficient means possible. But also to say, look, there are other values that have to do with how much of a disruption are we willing to tolerate in a place? Right? What are the sorts of inconveniences miners are going to have to face in order to live up to the standards that people would want to be in place if the mine was in their backyard? Right. And I think that that's, you know, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I think in this moment of reassessing our relationship to our work and to development and to industrial society, if I can speak in such grandiose terms, I think there is an opportunity to put different values on the table and to use different metrics to assess how we go about trying to reverse the last 200 years of, of damage to the planet. Thank you so much, Donald. This has just been such an informative and rich discussion. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about this as the competition for critical minerals increases. Thanks for having me. In the next episode, we're going to hear more about ways in which we can try and regulate the global supply chains for critical minerals beyond the state. This series is produced by the Sydney Environment Institute, a world-leading environmental research institute at the University of Sydney. This series is part of the Critical Minerals Research Project, funded by the Sydney Environment Institute, the Australian Research Council, and the Canadian Humanities and Social Sciences Research Council to investigate the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable energy transition. Stay informed about critical environmental research by subscribing to the SEI podcast series on your favourite podcast app and learn about the greatest challenges of our time.